from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with David Douglas on June 4, 2018. David is an educator and author of the book Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait. The book is about David's parents' interracial marriage. David explains how after his father died, his mother began writing this book. After about six months of writing, she passed away, and so David took up the mantle to complete the book. He reads two excerpts from the book in the interview, one from the pen of his mother and the second his telling of an episode in their lives. I started the interview by asking David where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. Well, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I was born in Cook County General Hospital in 1949, so a few decades back. My father is black, my mother is white, and at that time there were very few interracial couples around. As a matter of fact, interracial marriage was outlawed in at least, I'm going to say, 27 states about that time. And it was really um, frowned upon in most of the rest of the country. So south side of Chicago, lived in a housing project called Alt Galt Gardens until I was eight years old. They actually previously rented a, a house in uh, Woodstock, Illinois. My mom rented it while my father was away uh, serving the country in the army. At that point, she rented the house without the townspeople in this all-white town knowing that she was married to a black man. So he came home for leave. (laughs) The townspeople were quite surprised that they had an interracial couple in their, their midst. And they had town meetings to decide what to what to do about it about this situation. The um, rental agent contacted my parents and said you know, they would have to leave. Before they could leave, one night shots were fired through their window, the bird was killed, the canary was killed, and they packed up and left the following day. The Red Cross assisted them to find a place temporarily, and they ended up in this housing project, uh, all the birds where we lived. Virtually an all-black housing project, even though it was designed to be kind of interracial. I was not aware of any other white people who lived there besides my mom. And that's where I stayed till I, I was eight years old. Most of my experiences there were with black people and only had rare interactions with white people when we went to downtown Chicago. i read a passage from my book a little bit later about that. What was your family's religious life during this time? You know, that's a great question. So my parents, in addition to uh, being different because they were a mixed racial couple, were atheists. They had no belief in God. They were believed in the material world and what you could see, hear, taste, touch, you know, measure scientifically. They'd both been raised in, in religious families. My mom was raised by a very solid Methodist couple. She was raised going to church, but as she became an adult, she 
really begin to question religion because of all of the horrible things that happen in the name of religion. Things like the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition. She saw racial prejudice within the church and thought that religion had done more harm to the world than good. And my father had a similar story. He was raised by a very strict Adventist. Nothing about religion made sense to either of them. So that was one of the things that they had in common. Now, I was raised with the freedom to believe whatever I want. They said, this is the way we believe. But, you know, you're free to go to church. You're free to uh, think whatever you want to think about the existence of God. And for most of my life, my early life until I was 18, I pretty much just accepted their way of looking at the world, even though I occasionally would visit churches and would have all kinds of conversations with my friends. But, you know, I used to um, have questions myself, you know, if God exists, then which one of these religions is right? How is it that the Adventists claim that they're the only way that people who are saved and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Catholics and hundreds of different denominations of Christianity, none of that made any sense to me. Though I think I would call myself agnostic rather than atheist because I simply, I neither believed in God nor disbelieved in God and uh, was open to some sort of proof that presented itself. And that's pretty much the way I thought until, um, you know, I, I entered college and began really thinking more independently from my parents. You said you had moved to the projects. Was that until you were eight, or was it when you were eight that you moved to the projects? Really, I was pretty much born when my family was in the projects. You know, they, they went to the projects from their home in Woodstock, Illinois, before I was born. So that's where I was pretty much born and raised. And then when I was eight, my parents had the opportunity to move in with my father's mother in Detroit, they were looking for a change. My mother had a bachelor's degree in education and was looking for a job as an English teacher, found a job as an English teacher. And my father enrolled in Wayne State University in order to complete his bachelor's degree. And meanwhile, my grandmother on my father's side had purchased a home that was large enough to accommodate her, our entire family, and her brother, Bob. So we moved in when I was eight and lived in Detroit until I was 18 and went to college in Ann Arbor. From an all-black housing project, we actually went to a middle-class neighborhood in Detroit. And I say middle-class, there were large old homes. We moved into a five-bedroom home. So my parents had one bedroom, my Uncle Bob had a bedroom, my grandmother had her bedroom, then my brother and I shared a room, and my sisters both shared a room. It was a changing neighborhood in the sense that, you know, the first black family had moved in, and other black families had moved in some of the surrounding streets, and so there was this thing that we call white flight, where the white homeowners were very anxious to sell before their property values declined. And in their haste to sell, they reduced the prices of their homes, causing the property values to fall. Over the course of the years that we lived there, the neighborhood became blacker and blacker. That was 
one of my observations about race and, and race relations. I went to an interracial school. I was in third grade then. There were no problems between black and white kids, no racial problems. So we just all kind of got along as kids. Your mother's family seemed to be quite accepting of the situation. At first, both sets of parents were opposed to the marriage, perhaps for similar but different reasons. So my father's mother, who's black, but passed for white, by the way, just was raised at a time when, you know, under Jim Crow, and she knew about all the lynchage. She knew that black people could be killed for just looking at a white woman or because of rumors of somehow mistreating white women. And she said an interracial marriage is basically a death warrant in the South. And she also knew that up north, people didn't take too kindly to interracial marriages either, even though there wasn't the same kind of overt racism. Because she passed for white, she was in white work circles. During the 50s, 60s, 70s, she would hear her white co-workers making very racist comments about blacks. So she was acutely aware that there would be a, a lot of pressure on them and the possibility of danger. My mother's parents were concerned for different reasons. They knew that interracial marriages were unpopular, that my mom would lose status if she married a, a black person. And she also knew that they would have a rough time finding social circles that they could move comfortably. However, both sets of parents became supportive as soon as the children were born. In fact, when my parents were ready to move from Chicago, both sets of parents offered them a place to stay. My mom's parents were in Ann Arbor, in a, or just outside of Ann Arbor, on a farm, an 80-acre farm, and my grandmother was in inner-city Detroit. But they chose Detroit because of the educational and job opportunities that were there as opposed to a, a rural community. There might have been other reasons as well. So I'm speaking with David Douglas, educator and author of the book Marriage Beyond Black and White, an interracial family portrait. And David is explaining his growing up years. So David, why don't you continue? When I moved to Detroit in 1957, I was in the third grade, about to enter the fourth grade. I, for the first time in my, my life, had white teachers, white classmates, and white friends. In fact, my, my best friend was a, a young man of Serbian descent named Joe Karavik. He lived down the street from me and with his mom, who was divorced. His mom actually rented a room in her house to a white gentleman. It was kind of interesting because I was not allowed to go into his house when this gentleman was home because this gentleman didn't like black people. It led to a rather kind of strange relationship, strange and strained. But he was my best friend and he remained my best friend until he and his mom moved to the, the suburbs. In the fourth and fifth grade, there was a desegregation program that hit Detroit. I'm not sure what caused it, but I was then bused to a school that was in an even more white neighborhood. I actually think it was because of overcrowding. My school was overcrowded, so 
they had to find another school that was less crowded and that's where I went with it. So then I was um, surrounded by even more white people. Again, no problems with race among the children at all. At the same time, my parents attempted to develop some sort of social life in Detroit. And this was in the years, I'm going to say 1957 to 1967. You know, my father would make friends at school or later on at work. My mom would make friends with her co-workers in school where she worked as a teacher. And they would invite them over and for dinner for a social evening. Their friendships would end because their wonderful friends and co-workers really couldn't deal with an interracial couple. So even though people would like them individually, it was just too much stress for them to think of a black man married to a white woman and for them to socialize with that couple. So my parents were actually very lonely and socially isolated in Detroit, even though they were materially very prosperous. And we'd have discussions about race I remember when I was in second or third grade in Alt Gardens, this virtually all-black housing project, my best friend then was Melvin, who was a dark-skinned African-American young man. And he looked at me one day and said, you white, ain't you? I was the closest thing to a white person that he had ever seen. And so he thought that I was white. Clearly, I have African features. I have kind of a coffee with cream-colored skin. Most black people identify me as black these days. And most white people identify me as not white, though they can't make out whether I'm like Indian or Lebanese, Middle Eastern or whatever, but they know I'm not white. David, I have a question. How did your parents meet in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. My father was in work training program just outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, at a place called Cassidy Lake. It was part of the training programs that were uh, set up by Franklin Roosevelt to combat the Depression. He was there taking classes, and my mother was a librarian there. He went to the library to get a book to read, and she greeted him in a very charming way. As they tell the story, it was love at first sight. Before long, they were kind of kissing in the stacks. And before long, they decided that they wanted to get married. There's actually a passage from the book that kind of describes that. I can read it at some point if you like. Sure. So I'm speaking with David Douglas, educator and author of the book Marriage, Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait. So, David, you were talking about your spiritual journey in which you were an agnostic in school, high school, and then you were telling us about what may have transpired when you got to college. I'll start a little before then, because I'm a member of the Baha'i Faith, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that. But my first encounter with the Baha'i Faith was when I was 14 years old, and my brother was dating a member of this religious community. I remember asking him very distinctly, what do Baha'is believe? And he said they believe that there's one God, that people all over the world are worshiping the same God, that all of their religions were founded by divine messengers or prophets of God, and that mankind is one human family. 
And I remember kind of thinking, wow, that sounds like a religion that I could believe in. And I really wanted to know more about it. And I really wanted to go to some of these Baha'i meetings that he was going to with his girlfriend at the time. But I also knew that a 14-year-old younger brother tagging along with his 16-year-old older brother, what the older brother would think of his dates was not something that was going to happen. So I, I didn't pursue it. But in the back of my mind, I thought, I've got to investigate this religion and find out more about it. So I grew up, I graduated, I enrolled at the University of Michigan and was there for a couple of years. Around 1969, I really started to get involved in social and political movements. So I was involved in the anti-war demonstrations, what they used to call the peace movement. I was involved in some of the protests by it was called the Black Action Movement at the University of Michigan, where they were looking for a number of changes in the curriculum and admissions policies for black people. They wanted to set a goal for 10% of the students who were admitted being people of color. And so there were demonstrations about that. But pretty soon I saw how ineffective the demonstrations were. I watched the peace movement turn violent. The weathermen, for example, started blowing up places in the name of peace or people breaking into the draft offices and damaging the files, pouring blood into them, things like that. Martin Luther King had been assassinated, I believe, in the late 60s. And then nonviolent civil disobedience movement kind of went out the window as riots er erupted all over the place. I began to think about what does it take to make social change? And one of the conclusions I came to was that it really took very committed, morally consistent people. By that, I mean people who, if they believe in peace, they act peacefully. If they believe in kind of the equality of the races, they'll demonstrate that in all aspects of their lives. So I looked for people who showed that kind of moral consistency and came up with Everything from um, religious saints to social activists like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. The thing that they had in common, of course, was a very deep faith or belief in God. So at that time, I was humble enough and perhaps curious enough to say, hey, maybe there's some truth in the religious scriptures of the world. And so at that time, I began to really explore religion. So I'd explore it from the standpoint of reading about it. I'd also explore it from the standpoint of visiting churches or religious groups and talking to people. I went to Catholic charismatic churches. I visited the temples of the Hare Krishna movement. I uh, would talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. I read portions of the Book of Mormon. I read the Bhagavad Gita, portions of it. I started reading the, the Bible. I took a course in Hinduism. And I really came to the conclusion that there were some really striking similarities in all of the teachings of the, of the churches. There were some differences, lots of differences. So I kind of postulated that the authors of these um, various religious books were very inspired people who really 
were aware of some kind of mystical truth that most people are not aware of. And so it became my quest to really figure out some of the more basic spiritual truths of the world. So I started praying for the first time. I started fasting for the first time and really spent a lot of hours, a lot of thinking about what truth is. And so about that time, I ran across a display about the Baha'i Faith in one of the student display areas at the University of Michigan. And I saw posters uh, that said, the independent investigation of truth, the equality of women and men, all of the prophets of God proclaim the same faith. I remember one that said, "Year like the waves of one sea or the flowers of one garden with cute little illustrations. So I, I stopped and I had a discussion with the young man who was at the table and asked him what Baha'is did. It was important for me to know what Baha'is did because I really felt that any true religion should be about changing the world. Now I have to say the, the answer that I got wasn't particularly compelling. He, he said, well, they pray, they fast, <laughs> they go to feasts. But I heard feasts and I thought, oh, geez, well, what are those like? He said, could I go to one of your feasts? And he said, no, you have to be a Baha'i to attend feast. And I said, well, what do you have to do to be a Baha'i? He said, well, you have to just have to say that you're a Baha'i. You have to declare that you're a Baha'i. So he said, well, do Baha'is believe in all these things that are on the posters? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I'm a Baha'i. And he said, well, it's not quite that simple. You have to accept the prophet founder of the faith, Baha'u'llah. And so I said, well, you know, is Baha'u'llah a person who taught about all these things that are on the posters? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, I can accept Baha'u'llah. Now I have to say, I accepted Baha'u'llah as a great teacher at that point without any deeper understanding of who the founder of the Baha'i faith might have been or how extensive his teachings were. I mean, having read like all of 10 posters and my real reason for joining the faith at that time or wanting to join the faith was simply to go to feast, find out what Baha'is were really like and investigate the faith from the inside out. I felt like I could commit myself to a few meetings, and if I found that I didn't like this religion, I could just always unenroll. And so that began my real journey of in-depth investigation of the faith. I was actually immediately invited to go on a what they called a teaching trip. A group of us, there were probably 20, went to a small town in Michigan. Our mission was to tell people about the Baha'i faith. And it was kind of interesting. I said, but I don't know anything. He said, well, you know about Baha'u'llah, and you've accepted him as a prophet. If you only say that, you've said enough. So I went on this teaching trip. I was actually amazed at the uh, diversity of the group of people that I was with. So it was not only blacks and whites, but there were people from Africa at some of the early meetings, people from Asia at some of the early meetings. It kind of blew me away. It was actually the, the kind of group of 
friends that I'd always kind of wished for or longed for. A group of black and white people got along with each other. An international crowd that really accepted everyone as equals without the thought that they were somehow different because they were from another country. So that was tremendously appealing on an emotional level. And then someone gave me um, a Baha'i book. It was called Baha'i World Faith. And I began to read this book. I found the teaching very compelling. It was almost as if everything that I'd known or discovered or believed was in this book that contained teachings that were written more than 100 years ago. And I thought that that was extraordinary that there were millions of people around the world who were members of this Baha'i faith and that they all believed in this religion that had teachings that I thought were my unique beliefs. I really felt at home with the teachings of the Baha'i faith and with the people who were part of the Baha'i faith. And of course, it, it took me a while to really gain an in-depth knowledge of the faith because Baha'u'llah wrote, and we actually use the terminology revealed, we believe that these writings were directly inspired by God and we accept them as the word of God. So it, it took me a while to really read a substantial number of these books and to really get a very solid understanding of some of the nuances of the faith and a very deep belief in the teachings of Baha'u'llah. So I'm speaking with David Douglas, educator and author of the book, Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait. So David, at this stage in your life, what was the motivation for you to write this book about your parents? I became a Baha'i when I was 22, spent all of my married life as a Baha'i and have had three children. In 1995, my father was stricken with cancer and he succumbed to it very rapidly. He died within six months. My mother was heartbroken. She thought that their marriage was a story that was worth sharing with the world. They believe very strongly in the oneness of the human family. That's actually one of the teachings that is in the Baha'i faith. And so when I found that kind of belief in the Baha'i faith, it, it attracted me to that. And so believing, as they did in the oneness of the human family, they thought that their racial divisions were nonsensical. And they all thought that their marriage was living proof that interracial marriages could be healthy marriages and could produce healthy children. She and my father had always had this dream of writing about their family life. Of course, when he died, that dream was over as far as them doing it as a couple. But my mother decided that she would really like to pour her heart and her soul into writing the story of their marriage. So he died in February, I believe, of 1995. And she wrote furiously for about a six-month period, pouring her heart and her soul into the story of their marriage and family life. But after about six months, she wasn't eating properly or sleeping properly. And she 
wrote about 200 pages in the space of six months. And at that point, she actually succumbed to a, a series of heart attacks and strokes that rendered her incapable of finishing the book. Certainly, she was in a coma or a, an unconscious state, and that was the point at which I decided that I would do what I could to finish the book that she started. She died within a space of about a week, collected her notes, um, they were typewritten, some of them handwritten, and began to put them into digital form using a word processor and uh, finished off the first half of the book. Now, what's interesting is she wrote about her years up until the time when we moved from Chicago to Detroit. So it's about the time I was eight. I kind of tell the story from that point on, and I tell it from my perspective. So the book is actually written by two people in two different voices. The first half is by her in her voice. And I have to say, I hardly changed a word, and the editors hardly changed a word. She was very experienced and very uh, beautiful writer. And then the second half of the book is written by me. Her part of the book took about six months. My part of the book took about three years. So yeah, I wanted to finish the work that she started. And I wanted to be able to share that with our family. And I really had hoped to be able to get it published. Spent a lot of time, once it was finished, trying to find a publisher. Many of the publishers said, it's a great story but we don't think it'll sell. And finally, I was able to uh, show it to the folks at Baha'i Publishing, and they accepted it right away. So I'm speaking with David Douglas, educator and author of the book Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait. So David, it might be interesting to hear an excerpt from your mother's portion of the book and then an excerpt from the portion that you wrote. Okay, well, I'm going to throw in an added treat since my father wrote poetry, and I was able to include several of his poems in the book. So I'd like to actually start with a poem written by him, 1944. It's called To Barbara, and it's actually written in the form of a, an 8-6 sonnet with the proper rhyming scheme. To one who is my life's most joyous part, in whom are wrapped nobility and grace, whose inner beauty time cannot erase, I dedicate these verses and my heart. All nature cannot match the careless art with which she binds her hair. Her gentle face reveals deep purity. In her embrace, the glory and the good of living start. A woman only, she has all the might, the courage, and the Spartan strength of mind that men unwisely claim for their sole right. The heritage of intellect combined with passion from the sultry southern night make her a rarity, the prize of all her kind. So that was written by my father, October 6, 1944. David, when did your mother pass away? Six months after my father in 1995. Emotionally, it's something very close to you, even today. 
you know, it's not something I think about a lot, but I had a great relationship with my parents. I love them both deeply. I don't necessarily think about them so deeply very often. But when I do, of course, I miss them, even though it's been, I don't know, over 20, 20 yeah. over 20 years. I also find that this love that they had for each other is extraordinarily rare. So I get a little bit teary, a little, my voice cracks a little when I think about these things. And the same thing happens with the faith. When I really think about how much this faith means to me, it really touches my heart at a very deep level. I mean, it's made such a difference in my life. But the other thing, I call it a faith, but it's actually within this faith is a very powerful social movement that has the promise of really ridding the world of many of the social and economic challenges that are confronting it today. It really, its central teaching is unity. Its purpose is the transformation of mankind to bring about an awareness of this essential brotherhood, an awareness of religious unity, and to put into motion social forces and spiritual forces that'll solve the economic problems. And so I believe very deeply in this faith and, of course, have this profound love for my parents and all the ideals that my parents had, uh, even though they're atheists, were expressed very beautifully in this faith. It's kind of ironic. So there's a connection. I'm speaking with David Douglas, educator and author of the book, Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait. And he had just read a poem that his father had composed that was included in the book. And I guess now, Dave, you'll read an excerpt from the portion where your mother had written the book? Sure, I, w I will. Okay. So this is actually the uh, second chapter of the book, and it describes how my parents spent. I'd been in China, visiting a Chinese family in Peking, when the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1937, since it had been my intention to also go to West China University in Chengdu in south-central China, I started overland rather than going straight home, as most foreigners had already done. As a result of this unwise decision, I was caught behind the battlefront. For me, the only way out of China was to leave through Southeast Asia to do this, I had to flee more than 1,500 miles before the advancing Japanese army. It took me over a year's travel by boat, rickshaw, mule, and foot to reach Hanoi in Vietnam. I then had to go by gunboat to Hong Kong, where the American Consulate General generously offered to ship me home. Exhausted and penniless, I returned to Ann Arbor in 1939. Immediately, I went to stay with my parents on a farm they just purchased not too far from Ann Arbor. I needed time not only to regain my health, but also to somehow come to grips with the harrowing experience of those war years. I began writing the story of my experience in China. In June, won this prestigious Hopwood Award from the University of Michigan. The $1,500 prize helped me to feel a little more self-sufficient while I continued to live with my parents. The peace and quiet of farm life hastened the healing process of both mind and body. By the time Christmas came, I began to think once again about resuming a normal life. 
perhaps getting a job with the University of Michigan. Early in February 1942, I received a call from a Mr. McNeil, the director of a National Youth Administration camp at Cassidy Lake, not too far from my parents' farm. He'd heard that I was a graduate of the University of Michigan and that I was looking for a job. He asked to see me about a position that was open at the camp. I agreed. The position bore the impressive title of social director. However, so far as I could determine from Mr. McDeal's vague description of the job, it was a hodgepodge of unrelated duties such as librarian, English teacher, manager of social events, and so forth. The salary was adequate and the work seemed simple enough, so I agreed to take the job for the spring and summer of 1942. It soon became apparent that my first task was to put the books in, in the library in some sort of order. Having never done this before, and with only a vague memory of the Dewey Decimal System residing in some dark corner of my mind, I sat at my desk, pen in hand, and a blank sheet of paper in front of me, trying to think of some practical approach to the problem. The door to the library was open, for it was a beautiful spring day outside. Trees were turning green, the sky was a soft blue, and I saw robins and sparrows flitting from bush to bush. Someone was coming up the walk to the library. I can still see him standing there as clearly now as I first saw him then. A tall, slender, brown-skinned man who walked with the carriage and dignity of a college president on his way to the podium. Good morning, I said. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? His face lit up with a charming smile. You're new here, aren't you? He said. Yes, I replied. And I haven't the faintest idea what I'm doing. I'm supposed to be the librarian, I added ruefully. Dewey got you down? He laughed. Perhaps I can help. This was the first intimation of his quick wit and jovial sense of humor. I certainly hope so, I replied. Sit down, won't you? He smiled and took a chair beside the desk. His name was Carlisle Douglas. He was 22 years old and worked at Cassidy Lake teaching a class in radio repair. There was no sense of strangeness between us. It was as though we had known each other forever. Years later, I asked Carlisle about that first encounter. By then, of course, I was no longer a naive newcomer to the tangible and intangible ghetto walls that both limited and affected every phase of our lives. How come you even spoke to me at all? I asked. Carlisle paused for a moment or so and then looked at me in a special way that made my heart leap. First of all, the sun was in your hair and you were very pretty, but it was more than that. I don't know quite how to explain it to you. He paused while he searched for words. You see, if you'd been any other white woman, you would have said something like, yes, can I help you? Or what do you want? In a particular tone of voice. But instead you said, good morning. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? You smiled and your voice was warm and friendly. Carlyle knew as well as I how we measure, almost subconsciously, tones of voice and demeanors before responding to people. Black people, especially in the South, are particularly sensitive to the nonverbal cues of whites because their survival depends upon it. He continued, well, you see, there was nothing in your voice or behavior that sent out warning signals. Never before had I in my entire life spoken to a white woman without trepidation, let alone laughed and joked with one. I avoided contact with any of them in the South. You don't take chances like that. He leaned forward and touched my cheek. 
but you, my love, were different. And so that's the beginning of their relationship. A life full of laughter and tears, uh, challenges and triumphs, and four half black and half white children who uh, had their share of adventures. So I'm really impressed that your mother went to China. Why did she go to China? She had a a master's degree in uh, fine art, and she specialized in Chinese art. And it was her dearest wish to just immerse herself in the art and culture of the Chinese people. She learned to speak fluent Mandarin, and she just loved the Chinese people. She hated to leave there, might not have left there had it not been for World War II. And one of the deepest longings of her heart was to return to China, but that never happened. That's quite an adventure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she could hear the bombs and the shelling in the back. The Japanese were invading on the East Coast, and so she had to head west and southwest to get out of there. And she would not have survived had it not been for the help of the Chinese people along the way, all the villagers and small town folk who just wanted to help her out. Man, that's a story in itself. It's actually another book in itself. As a matter of fact, that's a story for which she won the prize, the Hopwood Prize from the University of Michigan. So I'm speaking with David Douglas, educator and author of the book, Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait, which is really a book about his parents. David, you're going to now read an excerpt from the part where you continue the story from when you were growing up. So I'm going to read from a time when I was in Altgeld Gardens and was in this all-black housing project. And I'm going to read about our bus trip on a public bus from Altgeld Gardens on the south to downtown Chicago, where we go to see museums and we go to the zoo and sometimes just for shopping. In those years, our family did not own a car. We could not afford to replace the car that had been destroyed in my father's horrible accident. When the consumer necessity of acquiring goods not available at the local five and dime, when that need struck, or when our parents wanted to expose us children to cultural experiences not available in our ghetto, the family would make trips to downtown Chicago by bus. Most of the trips were for shopping. However, there were enough cultural trips that my dearest and fondest memories of downtown Chicago are centered around the library, the art institute, and the museums rather than department stores. Yet even clearer than the memories of downtown Chicago are the images and feelings evoked by memories of the bus ride to and from the city's business district. We lived at a time and a place in which blacks could sit wherever they wanted on the bus. It was not a question of being discriminated against or being forced to sit at the back of the bus. What I remember most is the attention my family commanded. The bus rides always started at the bus stop near the well-littered parking lot of our small project shopping center. As all bus rides seemed to, ours usually started with a long wait. The stop was at the end of the line. It was the turnaround point at the southern end of the route from downtown Chicago to our remote stop at the southern end of the city. As soon as the bus arrived at our stop, all of the remaining passengers got off. My family and the other project residents boarded an empty bus. 
We enjoyed the opportunity to sit anywhere we wanted. Wherever we sat, we usually all sat together, and I waited until it was time for the bus driver to start heading back downtown. Other people sat where they chose, friends with friends, family with family, loners alone. When the bus started on this long, winding journey, my mother was the only white person on the bus. But there was nothing unusual about that from my point of view. She was the only white person in the projects. At least she was the only white person I ever saw. As the bus wound its way past the fields and factories along the banks of the Calumet and into residential areas of the city, more and more people boarded. At first, the people who entered the bus were all black. Then mixed groups of riders got on the bus. These groups were partly white and partly black. Then came the stops where all the people who entered the bus were white. One curious pattern I noticed when people selected seats on the bus was this. As new people visually scanned the aisle of the bus looking for the best place to sit, black people sat with black people and white people sat with white people. Although no one ever told me, I knew intuitively that there was a reason for this. Black people and white people were uncomfortable with each other. People feel comfortable and familiar with familiar surroundings and familiar people. Like naturally gravitates towards like. But I knew there was more to it than that. Don't ask me how I knew. I don't know how I knew. Maybe by intuition or subtle form of emotional osmosis or perhaps by body language. By whatever means, I knew somehow that whites did not like blacks and therefore sat with other whites. And that blacks often held a host of emotions towards whites, including fear, mistrust, anger. I was beginning to develop these feelings as well. Blacks, therefore, sat with other blacks. I think I also knew that beneath the mild exterior of many of the calm white faces was a boiling cauldron of hatred for blacks. Only later did I learn that many blacks held similar seething hatreds for whites. So later, I learned of the tragic hatred that many blacks hold towards themselves. The rule that blacks sat with blacks and whites sat with whites had only two exceptions. The first exception occurred when a black person or white person got on the bus and all the seats next to the people of his color were taken. Then he or she would sit next to a passenger of a different color. The only other exception was my family. We created an integrated seating pattern wherever we went. The people in the gardens must have become used to our racially mixed family. I don't remember encountering any stairs when we were in the project or at the beginning of the bus ride. It was only as the bus left our little sheltered community that we began to attract attention. Invariably, when people outside of the projects got on the bus, their eyes were irresistibly drawn to us. While they took pains to appear as if they were looking for a seat, it was obvious that they had to tear their eyes away from us in order to actually find one and sit down. We must have been quite startling. My blue-eyed, fair-skinned, beautiful mom with her coffee-ground-brown, well-groomed, kinky-haired husband and their four cafe au lait brown-eyed children. The stairs we attracted diminished as the bus filled, and it became harder and harder to tell who was attached to whom. But the brief respite 
from unwelcome stairs was only temporary. For when we arrived at our destination and my parents herded us off the bus, all eyes were once again riveted to us. It was literally impossible for us to have a normal shopping or cultural excursion in Chicago. Wherever we went, we attracted attention. Heads turned in astonishment and disbelief as we left the bus and walked down the street. People seemed to abandon the restraints of courtesy that normally prevent unabashed staring in public. Whatever street we turned down, whatever building we entered, the prying eyes of unaccepted public invaded our lives. However discomforting the stairs were, they were not enough to prevent my persistent and courageous parents from exercising their duty to expose us to the inexpensive cultural experiences that Chicago offered. I have vivid memories of touring the Art Institute, the Museum of Science and Industry, the Field Museum, and Shedd Aquarium. I enjoyed our family field trips and looked forward to them despite the fact that our mixed racial menagerie often attracted more attention than the formal museum exhibits. So we're listening to David Douglas, educator and author of the book Marriage Beyond Black and White, an Interracial Family Portrait, reading an excerpt from his book. David, where can people find your book? Probably the best place to get it would be BahaiBookstore.com. They have an electronic version for about five ninety nine, and then a paperback version for about seventeen ninety five, I believe. David, thank you so much for taking the time to share the story with us. Oh, you're quite welcome. This has been a pleasure. I enjoy talking about the book and my family. And yeah, I get a little bit emotional when I read my father's poetry or uh, sometimes even when I talk about my faith. But, you know, that's just part of who I am. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Douglas, educator and author of the book Marriage Beyond Black and White, an interracial family portrait. You can find his book at bahaibookstore.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Take your mind and they're attacking it. They're just some blood sucking money hungry Draculas. Yo, they say that life is tough. Ain't no way that you can battle it. It puts you in a cloud of confusion. Labyrinth. So now you're jaded. Dreams so faded. So you're living that life, but really you're living wasted. This is a digital age. Don't be a digital slave. Don't gotta sacrifice your life to be brave. They think that if you're young, then your brain you can't use. So they make fake realities that they hand you. And stuff it in your ears as if you can't hear the truth. The power's in the hands of the youth. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, Ali, he was a young boy. Yeah. Remember, Ali, he was a young man. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
People getting rich with the hype and the fallback Over the transient things that we got here Tell me where the line of consuming stops at When the value of what is priced high isn't all that It's probably made by a child in Vietnam Or a girl in Cambodia that's working till the dawn So the thugs from Thailand don't try to buy a little sister Driven by the tears of her mother when she kissed her goodbye But yeah, I guess you're looking kind of fly With all that fresh gear that you just buy I mean bot, what's the vocabulary I'm taught? Swag, swag, it's scary, is it not? Or is it just me? Am I going crazy? Isn't it wrong what they've done any wrong with B-I-H-E? I guess the freedom everywhere's a silhouette Over there they can't study, over here we're still in that say Say Yeah Say They think that if you're young, then your brain you can't use So they make fake realities that they hand you They stuff it in your ears as if you can't hear The truth, the power's in the hands of the youth The truth, the power's in the hands of the youth It's the truth, the power's in the hands of the youth Say
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.